The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Almighty Father, the reality that we cannot see but is more real than all the real things we will touch and interact with today. The reality is that one day Christ will stand on the earth and say, Awake! And all the dead in Him will rise. will stand in the light alive again. Awesome. By the word of your power, you spoke into existence everything that is. You thought it and it was in a moment. And again, you will reign as the sovereign king speaking life where there isn't any. Bless your name for that. Bless your name for that. And Father, I ask you this morning to do some of that work in a way here today, now. To speak to your church awake and to cause us to rise up and stand in the light alive. You have already given us life. You've given us your spirit as a taste of it. And you will one day bring it in fullness, as I've said and prayed here. But Lord, today a little more, please. Today, a little more. Give your word today by your spirit power to change. Give clarity to the things that I say and give clarity to the listening that we all engage in. And spirit of God, will you speak and will you command our souls to arise Some here, Lord, don't know you. Bring them life. Most of us do, I trust. Bring us life. Would you please speak and communicate to us the hope, the encouragement, the burden of this passage. We are dependent on you, Lord. If you don't speak, my speaking is worthless. So please, Father, would you command your spirit to run through the room here, to lift up Jesus before our eyes, to conform us to his image, to move us to hope in him, to rest in him, to rejoice in him, and to rise up and walk in him. Do that this morning, I pray, Father, Son, and Spirit. Amen. We return this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we find ourselves here at the very end of this chapter, which is also at the end of the main body of the letter. We do have one more chapter yet coming, chapter 16, and we will work through that because there are things in that chapter for us to understand and to apply. We will go there, but this is the, the pinnacle of the letter. This is the end of the main part of it, the, the body. As we've seen, Paul has spent this whole chapter dealing with the resurrection. This this issue of the resurrection was a confusing one in the church in Corinth. There were some there who didn't think it was going to happen and so taught that it wouldn't happen. And that's, that's a fundamental issue in Christianity. And so Paul has to address that. And he's done so here at the end because, really, it's the whole goal of the work of God. It's what this whole thing is moving towards. God's work to save people and to give to his people a new life. He's going there, and so he's saved to the end so he can finish on this note. And two weeks ago, we saw some description of what our new and glorious existence will be like when he brings about the resurrection. We saw some there. We saw what we are like now and what we will be like in the future 42, 43, 44, describing our bodies right now, even for Christians, as perishing, as as characterized by weakness and dishonor. But that's all going to change one day. 
And he comes and he gives us something new. We will be conformed to the image of Christ. That life is coming. And now in 50, following to the end of the chapter, he tells us a little more about that day, what it's going to be like. So we're going to look at 50 through the end of the chapter. And I need to point out again that he's talking about the resurrection here. And he's talking about the resurrection of Christians. What he's saying is he's talking about Christians. There is, another reality is that everybody will be raised. But the reality for those who are not believers is that they will be raised to judgment. So the obvious call on this repeatedly is trust Christ. You'll be raised to this new life. So we'll be looking at the resurrection here, telling us what happens to Christians. And some, summed up, I'm going to make three observations this morning, but summed up, here's, here's, the main, here's the main kernel this morning, main point. Christ's victory over sin and death provides new lives of victory for us forever. Christ's victory over sin and death provides new lives of victory for us forever. It's the main point that I'm going to unpack, but first let me read the passage. This is 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 50. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, <coughs> be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. 1 Corinthians 15. So here's my first observation this morning. I'm just going to unpack that, that main statement. Here's the first point. Christ will come to deliver his people out from death into the kingdom of God. He's going to come to deliver his people out from death and into the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God, think of a kingdom and define it, first off, just like you would any kingdom. A kingdom is a realm, is a, an area in which a king is in control. He reigns. So in this case, talking about the kingdom of God, we're talking about an area or a realm in which the Lord God Almighty reigns. And that reign is accepted and embraced and no longer rebelled against. I need to say that because in another sense, somebody asked me about this once, isn't it true that all of this already is the realm of God? And in a sense, yes, it is. God made everything that is. He's in charge of it. He is the king over it. He does reign over it. Nothing happens outside of his control. So in that sense, yes, this is already his kingdom. But that's not the way we're talking about it this morning. Kingdom here means kingdom in the way that we pray the Lord's Prayer. Your kingdom come, indicating it's not here yet. Would your kingdom come? So not just the, the reign of God, but the reign of God not resisted, not rebelled against but embraced, loved, rested in. That kingdom is the final stop on God's long road of redemption, the thing that He's working towards. It is the place where this God, and, and think about this God, the God of the Bible, not, not the God that people imagine and create, but the God of the Bible, this God, so good, 
so always right, so perfect and so pure, so holy and so loving and so merciful and so gracious and so kind and so wise and so powerful, so everything, so all in all, this God reigning. The kingdom. I sometimes stop and I want to invite you and plead with you to stop and and to imagine the kingdom where everything that is troubling and everything that is painful and everything that is awful and everything that is hopeless is no more. The kingdom. All right and all pure and all good, everything your heart has ever longed for in fullness, the kingdom. Every pleasure you experience now is fleeting. It all passes in a moment. Nothing, nothing stands. Nothing lasts. Every good is followed by a bad. That's the way it is now. But not in the kingdom. The kingdom will be a forever followed by a forever followed by a forever followed by a forever of grace and glory and goodness and love and rest and peace and hope because the one who is all of those things embodied fills it in fullness all in all the kingdom the place your heart wants to be even if you've never thought about it before the kingdom You sit in a world, and I know how you are because I'm this way too. You sit in a world, and what you really want most often is for this world to get kind of fixed. Let me ask you, really? No, you don't. You want the kingdom. You want this realm with this king, with righteousness and justice as the foundation of his throne for you in glory kingdom but we have a problem the problem verse 50 flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom can't that's the goal to, to live as a citizen of that realm to bask in that glory cannot flesh and blood cannot go there. And when saying flesh and blood, he is not saying material existence. We often use flesh and blood to describe something that's concrete. We mean it as opposed to ethereal. Something material as opposed to immaterial. That's not what he means. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. You know, keep reading the sentence. That is, the perishable cannot inherit imperishable. Or keep reading a little further down. Mortal can't inherit the immortal. These are the words that are all parallel, set in contrast. What he means is not that we can't be material beings there. He means that we as we are can't go there. This connects right back. The unfortunate thing about how, how I've preached this is that we lose touch with the verses that were right before this where perishable was one of the main words in the paragraph right above. Do you remember this from a couple weeks ago? Flesh and blood, perishable, mortal. What does that mean? He described it up above there, and it means more than just able to perish. Perishable means characterized by perishing, by decay, by decline, by fading away, by weakness and by dishonor, with death as the final step of that sort of life. That's perishable, and that's what we all are. Every single one of us sitting here, even those of us who are Christians, all of us are perishable. Yes, marvelously, awesome, awesome, awesome. We are indwelt by God the Spirit. Yes, absolutely. We are gifted by Him. Yes, absolutely. But we all, every single one of us, flower quickly fading. All of us. This is our life. It talks about this is our life right up until we die. Because we are, it says in 43, sown that way. 
Up until we die, all of us are like this. We are perishing people. We struggle with the decay of our bodies you're wasting away as you sit here. We struggle with sin natures that still are, are residing deep within our court. Yeah, we can grow. Yes, we can, we can achieve some level of growth in our sin struggle, but it's still there. Always will be. All the temptations you struggle with will be there. The shame of failing will be there. It's in our core. And that cannot cohabit heaven with the glory of this righteous one. It's like mixing oil and water. Those two things, the perishable, us, does not mix with the imperishable. Can't happen. The kingdom is what you were made for, what your heart longs for, and as you are even saved, you cannot go there. What are you to do about it? Nothing. You can't do anything about it. You are you up until you die. But the awesome thing is, God can. God can do something about it. Verse 51, Behold, I tell you a mystery. Something hidden and otherwise unable to be discovered, but now revealed. I tell you a mystery. Like you are, you cannot come to be with me in fullness. We see a little glimpse of him, yes, but just like Moses could only see a glimpse of him, at best we can aspire to see a little glimpse of him, but we cannot see him in fullness. You cannot come to me like you are in fullness, so I tell you a mystery. I'm going to change you. I'm going to make you different. It says it twice, the end of 51 and 52. This is the power of God the mercy of God, the kingdom that you were made for, that you long for, He will change you and fit you for it. And He says it twice so that we don't miss it, both the living and the dead. Makes no difference. All will be changed from perishable mortals to imperishable immortals. No longer, no longer subject to decay and decline, and weakness, and dishonor, stuck in our resources that we have here in the flesh. No. Different. Different. Now, carefully, we remain creatures. There are some people who misunderstand this and think that what happens when we are changed is that we become gods. False. Created Beings are forever created beings. If you think, think back to geometry, we are forever line segments from your perspective. The dot's here and the line goes here. There's only one who is truly eternal in the fullest sense, a line, God. And we are created and we will live forever, but we always have a dot. We start there. We will remain creatures forever. Marvelous, different, changed. Language of 53 and 54 is that of putting on. And it evokes an image of putting on clothing. So we're going to put on this imperishable, put on this immortal. And let's understand carefully what that is meant to depict and what it's not meant to depict. Now, obviously, the change that happens here is something that's very deeply seated. That, that I would be no longer of a nature that's, that's decaying, that's declining, that struggles with sin, that has even a sin nature. That, that's change that's really, really deep seated. So we are not talking about just putting on clothes so as to change just the outside. What it is trying to get at is that when you change clothes, you can create quite a different appearance. But inside, you are still you. That's the point. That when you go through this, when you are changed, the you-ness is not lost. The me-ness is not lost. You and I will still be you and I. We will know one another. I don't know how that is exactly. But you are changed. You is not eliminated and someone else made. 
follow that. You will put on a difference. But you will be there. This is remarkable. Difficult to think about. But remarkable. We can understand some of the changes that happen to us now when we become Christians and God the Spirit comes and lives inside of us. We understand it because we can see it. You can, maybe not day to day to day, but if you look at, at your life over a period of time, you can see the change. If you look at another Christian's life, you can see her change over time. And if you can't, one should ask, are you actually a Christian? Because change happens gradually in small ways over time. We can see that. But what we're talking about here is something quite different. The little change we have here now is, is a bit like, if you're a car person, it's a bit like repairing and, and refurbishing some old clunker. Maybe some great car, a Model T, a Ford Model T. You find one of those in a junkyard somewhere, you fix it up. I've never done this, but I know people who have. And you, you look on the internet and you find a new fender, and you put the fender on it, and you, you polish up the, the chrome, and you, you fix the seals on the engine, and, and man, this, that, and the other, and the thing works, and it's awesome, and it runs. That's great and nice, but that thing, no matter how well you fix it up, will never become a, a 2012 Porsche. Never. This thing running in mint condition will never beat that in a race. Never. In first gear. <laughs> never. That can't be this. It has to be totally changed. Now, I picked those things because there's a continuity. There's still vehicles. But the change is really different. No longer subject to the limitations of this life. That, that's mind-blowing because we can't picture life lived without decay and decline, without growing sense of age. But that's coming. He will change you. And He will fit you to enjoy and maximize all the pleasure of the kingdom. When? When's He going to do that? In a moment. When Christ comes. And not before. It's verse 52. In a moment, the last trumpet will sound Christ will descend, all will see Him, the dead will be raised, those who died in Christ and those who were still alive in Christ will all be changed in a moment, fitted with this new you and able to come into the kingdom. Now, as soon as we read, some of us, as soon as we read words like this and we see things like the trumpet and, and the last days, we, we begin to immediately think about eschatology and we think about our, our timelines. And I think there are some things in this passage. This is one of the reasons, joined with the Thessalonians, things we've been looking at, one of the reasons that I have some particular beliefs about what the last days will look like from this passage. But let me invite you to not miss the main focus. You being changed then and not before then but surely then there, he is going to come and in a moment strip away this old decaying self and make you new whether you're dead or alive either way make you new and you will be a marvelous creature, but a marvelous creature, no longer subject to decay and decline, but in glory and in power, bathed in the Spirit, introduced to a new existence forever that is coming to you. And that is meant to be, it should be, a message of hope to you who struggle right now with this existence. Many of us are well acquainted with Jesus' statement in the Gospel of John. In this world you will have many troubles. Many of us are well acquainted with that, or you will be. I'm more in the will-be category, partly due to the fact that I'm young, partly due to the fact that I've just been providentially blessed with health, and so has my family. But do you realize all of us will be? 
there are no exceptions. If you live long enough, you will experience many troubles in this world. Some right now. You will be, if you will stop and think about it, and, sh- and shut off, shut off the, the overdrive of this particular world, our world, our Western world, we are in overdrive attempting to avoid this reality. But if, if you can get around that or shut it off for a moment, you will become acquainted with perishable dishonor and weakness. You struggle with sins and habits. You struggle with the demons of your own evil choices. And let's be honest, a lot of our troubles we have created for ourselves by our own sin. And you will also struggle with the demons of other people's evil choices because let's be honest, we haven't caused all of our trouble. Other people are involved in that too. Some of you live right now out of Genesis 3. Straight out of Genesis 3, your relationships plagued by discord and the earth not yielding up to you its increase except by toil and sweat. And that's the way it is until you die. Merry Christmas. It is, you realize. It is. We're deluding ourselves to think that things are getting better. Things are, inc- oh, we're, we're improved. No, 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 uh-uh. Do you realize that? Flower quickly fading, do you realize that? Now, now there is much beauty and glory in this world because God's grace still is here. Thank you, God. But we are in decline. Some of you know it. You sit there mourning and troubled right now. But what passages like this are meant to do to you and for you is to say, yes, this is reality and so is that. There is coming a time when immediately in a moment there will be a dramatic and drastic change, a deliverance of you. Jesus, who always speaks the truth in this world, you will have many troubles, comma, but take heart. I have overcome the world. He's talking about this. I have overcome all of that that plagues and troubles you. He always speaks the truth. It has been accomplished. How do you know? The tomb was empty. The tomb was empty, and he has struck the death blow to death. If, if you will picture it, he's got, Jesus has grabbed death and is choking the last bit of life out of it. This is coming. Dramatic, drastic, full change life to you is coming. So you who mourn, you're supposed to read this and say, there is a great change coming. When he comes, not before, but surely then when he comes. So what he says to you, his child, hold on with me. You trust me. I understand very well The many troubles you have in this world, I have addressed that. Maybe not in some ways that you would prefer, but I have addressed it. And I will fully and finally deal with it one day when I come. Trust me. So please, Christian, take this, take this first point here. He's going to deliver you from death into his kingdom. Take that, grab a hold of it, and trust it. Rest in it. And he tells us a little bit more still, meant to encourage you still, which leads me to the second point. 
So this comes right out of the statement. The second point, logically in my mind, comes right out of the statement. When he comes, he will deliver, but not before. And I, I kind of want to ask the question, why? It's at least a question that occurs to me. Why? Why is that? And so here, here's the point, and then I'll come back to the question. The manner of our deliverance is designed to highlight the victory of Christ overall. So understand that sentence and where it goes. It starts with us, the manner of our deliverance, but where it goes is to Christ. The manner of our deliverance is designed to highlight Christ's victory over all. As I said, I come to this from a question. Why? Why wait to accomplish this change once and for all when Christ comes? For example, why couldn't he do it when each person dies? Rather than leaving people, as the Bible says, when a person dies, they're in the presence of Christ, with Christ, but not changed. Not experiencing the fullness of God. Not experiencing this kingdom. Not changed yet. That happens when he comes. For all the dead and all the living. Why not just do it one at a time when people die? Could do that. Well, look at verse 54 and then keep thinking with me. When Christ comes and this change happens, 54 says, then shall be fulfilled these two quotes here. He's got the first lines from the book of Isaiah and the second two lines are from Hosea. Two prophets in the Old Testament. The most important one's the first line. That's from Isaiah chapter 25. So what he's saying is, when Christ comes and the immortal puts, and the mortal puts on immortality, then will be fulfilled this statement from Isaiah chapter 25. Then, death is swallowed up in victory. It's from Isaiah 25 beginning in verse 6, where in that chapter, God speaking through Isaiah describes the kingdom in Old Testament language. If God's going to make something, something real and desirable to people, He's got to put it in language that makes sense to them. And so He speaks in the language of the Old Testament when He describes the kingdom come in Isaiah 25. And what He says there, On this mountain, writes Isaiah, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples, for all the nations, a feast of rich food and well-aged wine. Picture that. God making for all the nations a feast of plenty, of abundance, of luxurious dining and, and, and filling us up with choice stuff. Not, not just bread, but meat and wine, which is good in the Bible. Obviously, we abuse it. But it's a gift. And he will swallow up the covering that is cast over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. There's the reference. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach that is the scorn, the abuse that is on his people, he will take away. Do you hear all that? There's the kingdom in Old Testament language. Abundance, provision, safety, security, community, fellowship with God, death removed, sorrow and mourning and tears removed, reproach and scorn, all kinds of dishonor removed. And then verse 9, this is the point. It will be said on that day, when all this comes to pass, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for Him that He might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for Him. Let us be glad and rejoice in His salvation. Do you get that? Make that clear. Why not just change people one by one by one by one by one when they die? They go off somewhere. Why not just change them then? 
nobody would see it. Nobody would see him swallow up and defeat death. Nobody would see him wipe away the tears and remove the scorn and the dishonor. People would get changed and delivered. Yes, but that's not God's goal. That's not his main goal. Yes, he's about delivering us, absolutely, but that's not his main goal. God's main goal is to make much of Christ. To lift Him up in front of people. To, to lead us to, to see Him with all of our eyes, both those of us who believe and those who do not. His main purpose is to make much of Christ and to maximize for Christ all honor and to maximize for those of us delivered all joy. Seeing this is our God. We have waited for Him to deliver us and here He has done it. Look! Behold, this is the one we have waited for, and look at him victorious over every enemy, even now death. The trumpet sounds, a loud voice calls out, the heavens part, Christ descends, and with a strong hand he rips out of the grave all of the dead, all at once, millions of people. Can you see it? You will be stunned by it when the grave opens and millions of people rise, change, right before your eyes. Not one by one by one, off somewhere hidden. Glorious day. And there will be no mistaking what has happened and who it is who did it. To the praise of His glorious grace. Maybe you need an imagination. That will be awesome. And not one of us will be there thinking in the midst of that, man, I am saved. Cool. We will all be thinking, hallelujah, what a Savior. Look at Him. As He comes and stands on the earth and strips away the only existence you've ever known and gives you a completely different, glorious one. And all of us, all together at the same time, experience it in wonder and in awe and in praise. We'll see the goodness of God, and we will understand the saving work of God then as we see Him call everyone out of the grave and change us. And we will also, in a new way, in a deeper way, understand the saving work of God that happened at the cross that enables that day. The two days are connected. Without the first day, without the cross, the resurrection does not happen. What is death's sting? The passage tells us. Death is swallowed up in victory, and then 55 is a taunt. Oh, death, where's your victory now? Is that all you got, death? Is that all you got? Thought you had a tight grip, huh? My Savior has torn out of you everybody he wants. It's a taunt. Where's your sting now, death? Well, what was the sting of death? Well, 56, the sting of death is sin. And, and if you track this, just as an aside, verse 56 alone has several chapters in Romans stuck into it. But verse 56 alone is pointing out that, that even at that resurrection day, we will be thinking about the glory of the cross. Because what enables the resurrection is that the sting, that is the, the danger... The, the harmful power of death has been removed. How did that happen? That's the cross. What's the sting of death? Sin. Well, what is sin? Sin, in its simplest form, sin is, I picked it like this, God, uh, no. I'm going to go my way, do my thing, set up what I desire and follow after it. That, that in essence, is sin. And the reason that that is the sting, that's the danger in death, is if you combine you 
sin, and death, and go take the three of those before the holy judge, you have trouble. A bit like, if, if you will, a scorpion venom in your bare foot. The three of them don't mix. Two of the three are okay. You need to remove the venom. And if you remove the venom, the scorpion is scary perhaps, maybe a little poke, but it won't kill you. But if you combine you, sin, and death, you have an eternal problem before a holy judge. Sin is the sting of death, and the power of sin is the law. What he means by that is God's law it's perfect and holy and good law that is the reflection of God to us. So I said here, God, well, how I perceive God is in the law that is good. It reflects all that God is. I say, God or God's law? No, I'm going to go away from that. So the, the law actually stirs up and empowers in me this sin. It, it feeds it, causes it to grow. Well, what Christ did at the cross was fulfill the law and remove the sin, to take the venom out of it. So I can die, and Christ can raise me back up with no power in death to hold me. I'll see on that day when He opens the graves and pulls us, and if I'm dead, pulls me out of the grave, I will see not just the power of His deliverance at the moment, but I will see in a new way the cross really worked. It really did strip away the sin out of my heart, off of my account. He really did pay for it when He died. The fact that I'm standing here is proof. Hallelujah. Thanks be to God who gives me the victory in Christ Jesus. Verse 57. Christian, this whole book has been preaching this to you. God has acted to save you. Thanks be to God who gives the victory in Christ. God has acted to save you. God has acted to save you by sending God the Son to earth to die on a cross to remove sin off of you so as to give you life. He's been about that from page one of this book. Christ and Him crucified, salvation for you. You see it again here. You'll see it again on that day. So may it, may it cause you to contemplate and to think about the, all that God has done to save you, not because of anything in you. You contribute nothing to it. You bring nothing to the table except your sin. God did not look at you and say, there's a morsel of something worth saving there. Or He will save Himself by responding to me. No. God looks ahead and says, all of them, like sheep, have gone astray. I will have to go get them by my own will, by my own work. And all the praise will be to me. Thanks be to God who gives us salvation in Christ. So may it fuel in you worship and praise and trust. And if you haven't yet, if you haven't yet, come to a place where this is the Christ that you know. You know of Jesus, heard of Him, know about Him. But if you haven't yet come to a place where the Jesus who is God's salvation, the Jesus who came to earth to die on the cross, to pay for the sin of those who trust Him, if you don't know that Jesus, I have to point out, you too will be raised, but not changed. Because there is still sting in death for you. 
You will be raised. You will stand before the Holy One with you and with sin and with death. That will be eternal trouble for you. He tells you that now to warn you and to call you, trust Christ now before it is too late. So I invite you, I plead with you, trust Christ now before it is too late. Do not die under His wrath, failing forever to see the kingdom. It will be tremendous loss to you. Turn to Him. Final observation I'm going to make here. It's going to be shorter. Here's the final point. Because your future victory is secure, lay down your life today. Because your future victory is secure, lay down your life today. This is the final observation from this morning, from this passage. It's the application towards which it's all moving. I'm drawing this from 58, verse 58. So it's the It's the application towards which this section builds. But follow this. It's also the application towards which the whole chapter on the resurrection builds. The end of that chapter. And it's also the application towards which the whole book of 1 Corinthians builds. This is the end of the main body of the letter. Because it's the application towards which what this book is about, God's gospel, building a church, saving people, it's the application towards which everything builds. This last point, I heard it before, but it's here at the end to hear yet one more time. Knowing that in the Lord, it's the end of verse 58, so knowing that you are in the Lord, knowing that in the Lord... I'm talking to Christians here. Knowing that in the Lord, trusted Him, all of your work, your labor, is not in vain. It's not empty, worthless, pointless loss. Your service for Him and for His kingdom and for His people is not empty and pointless. God uses it to accomplish His purposes to build up His church, to bring all of the nations under Christ. It's not in vain. It's not worthless. So know that. And then notice how the sentence is structured. That's at the end. And you have a little I-N-G on the end of that. Knowing means while this is going on, while you are knowing this, what's the exhortation? First part of the verse. Therefore, my beloved brothers, sisters, Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that it's not in vain. One drives the other. The intention is that you would become convinced of it. You would know your work is not in vain, and that would drive then the exhortation. Be steadfast, immovable, and abounding in work. A bit like saying it to create a parallel sentence. If I were to say, eat up. There's the exhortation. Eat, knowing that this food will nourish you. I'm intending to drive eating with truth. Something that you know. Well, here, work, having become convinced that it matters, that it profits, that it helps, that it gains. It's not in vain. Any sacrifice you make, importantly, it fulfills, it works towards, 
It reinforces, it joins in with what God's purposes are in the world, in the church, and in you. And it won't leave you wishing you hadn't. That's important because I think that's the unstated question in the back of many of our minds when we face some opportunity for sacrifice. I could give this time, but I'm probably going to wish I'd done something else with it later. I could give this money, but I have a sneaking suspicion or a fear that I'm going to lose this opportunity to use the money for something more enjoyable. I could talk to my neighbor but I'm really thinking that he's going to laugh at me and he doesn't care anyway because he never listens to this kind of stuff. What's going on back here is, is the belief that this, it's not worth it. This is a waste of my time, a waste of my money, a, a waste of my effort, a waste of my prestige. What he wants is for you to know something. God always always makes good on what he empowers his people to do. I stated that carefully there, on what he empowers his people to do, because we can do any such thing, can't we? God's not promised to bless us because we decide to do it. So there is a little qualifier there. We have to be sure that what we are being steadfast and immovable and abounding in is what God wants. But what lies behind that is a conviction in the mind that this will not be wasted, but will bear me much fruit, will bear the kingdom much fruit, will bring honor to God. The future victory is sure and you cannot lose anything of value. You can lose your life. Sure, well, he'll raise you up. You can lose everything you own. So what? You're an heir of the kingdom. You're an heir of the kingdom. Who needs this stuff? I, I say that flippantly, but I want you to know I wrestle with my hands holding my money too. My hands holding my money. I wrestle with that too, just like you do. Maybe time's the issue for you. I wrestle with that. I have, to, I have to revisit this truth. It will not be wasted. It will not be in vain. Christian, I just ask you, do you believe that? Yes or no? Then be steadfast immovable, firmly planted, stand and lay it all down. He said that repeatedly throughout this letter. Be imitators of me. Chapter 4. As, as I live a life that is one of scorn and a laughingstock of the, of the city. Imitate that. Why? So that some may come to know Christ. He'll use you. Do you believe it? Yes or no? Stand fast. Be abundantly sacrificial in the work of the Lord. A phrase that surely can include all the assorted ministries that he gifts us to do, but particularly seems to have an emphasis on outreach. The main thing the Lord is about is building the church so as to reach the nations. Building the church so as to reach the nations. It's the main, that's the heart of the work of the Lord, which is why it's going to be hard. You've got to stand in it. It's hard. But he calls us, his people, and his people, to say, this is what, as a Christian, as a member of a church, this is what I am to be about And I have a secure future. I cannot lose. I can afford to give it all away, to let go of everything. 
it's not a complicated concept, but it, it really comes down to, do you believe it? Yes or no? If you don't, every call to steadfast, immovable, abundant work will fall down. Because that's all rooted in knowing that the Lord, work in the Lord is not in vain. Do you believe that He is coming? Do you believe that He will grab you, take you, raise you up, change you, and introduce you into the kingdom? The kingdom. The kingdom. Can you picture with your mind's eye the king welcoming you into his realm and speaking over you, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into your master's joy, this kingdom of your final rest and reward. That day is coming. Do you believe it? Yes or no? I'm going to pray that you will believe it. That He will remind you of the empty tomb. He will remind you of the cross and He will stir in you a conviction so that you will know nothing I lay down, nothing I give is in vain. So I'm going to pray now. Pray with me. Father, the truth is that we are still a fickle people. We believe the truth about you in one moment. We are encouraged in it and challenged by it for a day or two. And the circumstances come along and we forget. So what I want to ask you to do, Father... unless you know what you would prefer to do better. What I want to ask you to do is to press on your people here a firm conviction that while in this life that is fading away, we should be people who give our lives away. And press that on us by assuring us that you will come and give us new life dramatically again one day. Press that on us, I ask, Lord. Would you move through the crowd on individuals here and touch areas that they hold onto, that they, that they find their hearts entrenched in, and first make them aware of the entrenched reality of, of, of resistance against you. Or perhaps of, of a fear or a, a weak-willed waffling. Make your children here, Lord, aware of that. And then cry over that in their hearts. Salvation won for them in Christ. The sure coming kingdom. Would you address your people, men and women, boys and girls, address them as needed in the situations where they live. And Lord, I also pray that while here you would empower us to work, but I pray that you would send the Lord Jesus soon. Bring him, bring that day. Bring your kingdom. We look for it, Lord. We hope for it. We pray for it. And we say thank you for the assurance that it is real and that it is coming. I pray this in thanksgiving in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. 
We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.